Welcome back to From My Mom's Basement, the podcast recorded directly from my mom's basement. I'm your host, David Chamberlain, and this is the 16th episode of the podcast entitled Ruth and the Power Washer. Thank you for listening. You normally arrive around 6.30, just before sunrise. The sky is dynamic, purpling, and changing color. The operator, or groundskeeper, greets you and ushers you through the gate and onto the grounds. He or she is not what you expect. Even after years of working in this field, you expect them to be old and dirty and holding a lantern in one hand. But they are not this at all. They are well-groomed and professional. They carry themselves like any white-collar worker in any part of the world a little stiffly, and a little self-important. They lead you around the grounds, pointing to things and explaining protocols unique to their specific location. Then they begin, like all the others, to tell you the history of the property, all notable occurrences and happenings. Whether strange or banal, these stories are nothing you haven't heard before. But you are polite, you smile when the story is supposed to be funny, and you raise your eyebrows when the story is supposed to be frightening. This whole time you are dragging your equipment with you, something the groundskeeper seems unaware of. You have your power washer, Scotch-Brite sponges, water bucket, industrial-strength cleansers and spray bottles, and wire brushes of various sizes. The groundskeeper doesn't notice you have started to sweat and that your breathing is accelerated. Either they haven't noticed or they just don't care. When the tour of the grounds is complete... They point to the places that need special attention, the trouble spots, and leave you to your own devices. You walk to the region needing a little extra elbow grease and drop your supplies. You stand alone amongst the gravestones. They all surround you, stare at you, silently begging to be washed first. You imagine the gravestones as children, as a crowd of dirty orphans asking, pleading to be cleaned. Their faces are turned up at you. Their eyes are desperate. You don't know where to begin, so you start with the graves closest to you. Just like with the thousands of graves before this, you begin with your wire brushes. You kneel down beside the gravestone as you would kneel for a child asking for a hug and begin removing the grime and dirt that clings to the stone. This is the hardest part. You have to engage your upper body your shoulders and chest to scrape away the thick layer of grime that has bonded itself to the grave. The dirt and grime permeate the stone. They are eating the grave, digesting it. Years of sitting outside open to the elements has left the grave vulnerable to weathering and erosion, geology's age-old adversaries. Nature is already reclaiming this unnatural man-made formation, swallowing it up. As you scrape at the stone, you begin to reveal its details, its identifiers, the name of who the grave belongs to, and the years of their life. Most often, the two dates on the gravestone are separated by 65 to around 85 years, with some more common outliers reaching as high as the mid-90s or as low as the mid-40s. There have been much greater and lesser numbers, however. You have washed some graves whose owners lived past 100 years and others whose owners never made it to one year. Fifteen minutes is the shortest time you have ever seen on a grave. You still remember the dates. Born on December 12th at 8.30 p.m., died on December 12th at 8.45. 
You wonder if that baby had time to do anything, if it even cried, or if it was too busy being poked and prodded by doctors and nurses and such to experience anything. They couldn't have even watched a full episode of TV. They wouldn't have made it to the second commercial break. 107 years is the longest time between dates you have ever seen marked on a grave. You don't remember the exact dates, but you do know that they lived through the latter half of the American Industrial Revolution and got to see the Challenger explode on national television. That's a long life. You take your thin wire brush and run it inside the letters and numbers carved into the stone. Particles of dirt and dust and crumbling pieces of the grave itself spill out of the carvings. When you are finished with the thin wire brush, you step back and read what is on the grave marker. The two dates on the grave are separated by 79 years, a very common number. The grave belongs to a woman. Her name is Ruth. She died long before you were born, before your parents were born. This grave was erected before your grandparents graduated high school, before the roads that surround the graveyard were paved with asphalt and crowded with cars. You see a bit of grime remains in the bottom of the U in Ruth. You forego using your wire brush and instead use your fingernail to dig it out. You look at the dirt caught under your fingernail and wonder if it had lived in that U longer than you've been alive. Beneath Ruth's name is the epitaph always in our hearts. This is a phrase you see often. You've seen it hundreds of times before. It's a little less common than beloved wife and mother, but more common than, say, returned home to God. By far the most common epitaph you see is the old classic, May They Rest in Peace. You have read that phrase so many times it has lost its meaning, kind of like when you repeat the same word over and over again. You have come across less common epitaphs, though. Things like personalized messages or even inside jokes. Some of the most bizarre epitaphs you have ever encountered read, She knows where to find it. And, Another round of chess? You have scribbled your favorite epitaphs on a couple 3x5 index cards which now hang on your refrigerator. A couple of these favorites have been, You are the remainder. And, It was worth all the trouble. But you enjoy the sweet simplicity of Ruth's epitaph. It is a common phrase, but no less true. Once the bond between dirt and stone has been broken, the grime's grip on the grave loosened, you break out the chemicals. You spray the face of the stone with the high-powered cleanser and watch as it runs down the grave in long, clarifying streaks, revealing the smooth alabaster that sits beneath the dark layer of grime. You spray the stone a few more times and then retrieve your Scotch-Brite sponge. Then, as if removing a long-held disguise, you scrub away all of the loosened dirt and grime in rapid circular motions, unveiling the pure and wonderful stone that lies beneath. The chemical cleanser bubbles as you agitate the liquid. The bubbles are the color of charcoal and ash, filled with bits of rock and dirt and other geological matter. You finish scrubbing and find that you have uncovered a yellowish, medium-sized gravestone. The white alabaster is now faded the color of old ivory or stained teeth, and where they used to be sharp and refined, the edges of the grave are now rounded and chipped. All signs of human precision and measurement are being beaten and defeated by the relentless oppression of nature.
You take a step back from the grave and look at it in its new, purified state. You see that this stone is already following in the footsteps of its owner and is succumbing to old age and decay. But as you wring out your sponge and watch the clear water in your bucket turn into a soupy gray color, you realize that this tombstone has already outlived its owner and has been standing on earth longer than Ruth ever had. You've seen this phenomenon before, especially in very old tombstones whose owners passed away in the mid-19th century, but the date on Ruth's grave seems too recent for it to be that old. You shake your head in disbelief. As you start up your power washer, letting the irreverent sound of its compressor thunder across the lawn, you begin to understand that there is a very small difference between a life that is 15 minutes long and a life that is 80 years long. For the stone will outlive everyone. And not even these stone monuments, which outlive the lifetime of their owners by many decades, if not centuries, will outlast the constant march of time. Nothing is immortal. Nothing is impervious to time's incessant forward crawl. You look out at all the graves surrounding you and see that these stones are already being crippled and destroyed. Soon enough, maybe not in your life, but soon enough, these graves will be reduced to little more than rubble and dust, brought back to their elemental forms, to their original condition as prescribed by nature. Before hitting Ruth's stone with the power washer, you look at the moisture stains burned into the grave beneath the carved lettering. You look at the cracks forming at the base of the grave and the missing fragments of stone at its top. And you see, you see very clearly, that this young 80-year-old headstone is already losing its fight against time in a very obvious, almost humiliating manner. You open up the nozzle on your power washer and fan the gravestone with a firm jet of water. All remaining residue is ripped from the stone and falls down the grave in a dark, dirt-filled waterfall. The stone begins to glisten, to shine beneath the early morning sun. The grave, for the first time, looks beautiful and pristine. Time may be winning, may be beating you in this headstone, but you clean the grave just the same. You need to take care of these things. It's important to take care of these things. Who knows? Maybe the stone will fight on a little longer because of you and your brushes and your sponges and your power washer. Once the stone is shining and the lettering is clear and clean as if punched into the stone by a hydraulic typewriter, you take out a rag and wipe the stone down. This is the last step in your routine. It's also the most personal one. Wiping the stone is an intimate process, full of care and serious concern. It reminds you of how you bathed your own children when they were young and helpless. You go over every inch of Ruth's stone with the rag. You want it to be clean, to be perfect. You don't know when she will be cleaned again, if ever again. Perhaps the next time this grave needs to be cleaned, they will call you and find no answer, and they will learn that you now have your own tombstone that is in need of cleaning. You wring out the rag into your bucket. When you are finished and satisfied, you stand up and move away from the gravestone. You gaze out at the graveyard beyond, at the hundreds of dirty children silently waiting their turn, all with names and dates and people they have left behind. The sun is out in full now, already making you sweat. You wipe your forehead with the same rag you used to wipe Ruth's grave, and wonder who will clean your grave, and if they will use a power washer, 
and if they'll know how to properly scrape away grime with their wire brushes, and if they'll care to even read your name or how long you lived. You sigh and grab your equipment and move to the next nearest gravestone. You kneel down before this grave, and just before you begin the process all over again, you look back to Ruth's headstone, which now jumps out in stark contrast against the sea of gray and dreary graves behind it. You admire your work, and you admire Ruth. Her tombstone is shining, gleaming, glowing. You smile. Then, a wind picks up, and you watch as particles of dust and dirt whip up against Ruth's pretty stone face. You see that nature is already hard at work again, indifferent to all the trouble you just went through, never ceasing to slowly, but consistently, consume and digest what man has created and worked so hard to preserve. But even so, you pull out your wire brushes and get back to work. Thank you for listening. That was Ruth and the Power Washer, written by David Chamberlain. This episode was written, edited, produced, and narrated by myself, with the music being by Kevin McLeod. Thanks again. Thank you.